Welcome to Terra Talks. This is your host, Kwame Terra. Today's episode is a lecture recording from an event I attended at UC Berkeley in 2018 featuring Van Jones. So for those who don't know, Van Jones is a political commentator for CNN. Um, He worked with the Obama administration as a part of their Green Jobs Initiative and has really been a voice of reason, in my opinion, uh, in the political arena. Uh, He tries not to position himself as liberal or conservative. He he just has opinions on ideas. Uh, He'll call out racism when he sees it. Uh, he'll, He'll call out exclusion when he sees it. Uh, he'll celebrate progress, um, but he talks a lot about the political climate in this talk and how important it is for us to get that under control. The title of the talk, or the topic of the talk, was how climate change would disproportionately affect communities of color. Um, he didn't end up speaking much about climate change. Um, instead, like I said, he spoke mainly about the political climate and how if we don't get that under control, there really is no hope for any progress on any of these nonpartisan issues like climate change, um, like prison reform, and things like that. So I'll let him do the rest of the talking, um, but I really enjoyed this talk. Uh, I think that the audience um, really heard what he was saying, because it is time for us to to take a step back and, and try to realize in what ways the left is perpetuating some of the same violence, some of the same discrimination, um, some of the same exclusion that that we are fighting against um, from from some parts of the right. So, without further ado, Van Jones. It's a weird idea in the first place. Um, 
our competitors are now China and their model, uh, which has stability uh, and economic growth and is attractive to a lot of uh, countries that are coming up in the developing world, uh, Putin, ISIS, and us. This is not inspiring. So even those of us from the left who may have very strong uh, and very well-grounded <laughs> criticisms of the liberal capitalist order, uh, looking at what else is on offer, uh, Putin, China, and ISIS, uh, with the rest of the West's uh, growing right-wing authoritarian movements, um, I think need to get a little bit more sober about what's at stake and a little bit more sober about what it means to have a pro-democracy movement in the United States. Uh, I think you saw uh, one week ago the emergence of a pro-democracy movement in the United States that has the capacity to fight back, to win elections, to elect women, to elect people of color, to elect Muslims, to elect the first uh, gay mayor, uh, gay governor, um, and to actually begin to contest for power. I think that's important, and I think it's a big deal, particularly because we are in a particular moment where liberals are culturally ascendant, but politically overall powerless, and have been in free fall since 2008. When Barack Obama was elected in 2008, we all were very happy, especially you. <laughs> I, I saw you guys on YouTube. <laughs> it was embarrassing. <laughs> uh, uh, and understandably so. You know, uh, Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy killed in 68, uh, the year that I was born. 40 years in the wilderness, and then 2008, you have Barack Obama, and people were really euphoric. The problem is that after that, the Democratic Party went into complete collapse, and nobody noticed. Uh, 2010, lost the House. Uh, 2012, barely eked out a win against Mitt Romney. 2014, lost the Senate, and throughout, lost two-thirds of the governorships, and I think 3,000 statewide offices. And basically, most people in on the Blue Coast didn't know we were in trouble until 2016. So you have this weird scenario, and it's important for you to take this seriously, where you have liberals in ascendancy culturally, but in political freefall. You say, how can you say we're in political ascendancy culturally? Well. Think about the LGBTQ plus movement. Just think about that. In 2012, that's not a long time ago, 2012, Barack Obama himself was afraid to say that he supported marriage equality. You say, that can't be true. Dan's lying.
Get on the wrong side of Black Lives Matter. Get on the wrong side of the Me Too movement. Get on the wrong side of any of our movements. You're going to have a bad day. So there's a cultural power that we have while we're in political freefall. At the same time, if you're a conservative, you're very good at figuring out how to win elections. Uh, sometimes it's some gerrymandering, we won't get into that. I'm not going to talk about voter suppression. Mm. Much. <laughs> <laughs> but culturally, you feel under the gun. You may feel very uncomfortable that if someone says they're a Buddhist or someone says that they're into Hinduism or someone likes crystals or sage or whatever. <laughs> you may have met some of these people. <laughs> those people are perfectly welcome in any conversation. But if you say you're a Christian, suddenly the room gets quiet. You may feel quite uncomfortable culturally when you cut on television now. And you see relationships and activity that you were raised to think poorly of right there on TV. And you may feel inhibited from expressing that concern because you don't want to be called a name. So you have now two sides. Both have power, different kinds. Both are afraid of the other side abusing their power. And both want the other party to acknowledge their pain first. This is just how things were before your parents got divorced. You remember this? <laughs> This should feel very familiar to you. <laughs> Two sides, both have power. Both afraid the other's going to abuse their power. And both sides want their pain acknowledged first. A double asymmetry. A double asymmetry. That then creates a lot of energy in the system. And we don't know which way this thing is going to go. So, in a situation that volatile, it's not a left-wing period, it's not a right-wing period, it's just a turbulent, volatile period. You could lose everything or win everything. The floor's been torn out from under us by behavior in the White House that's shocking on a hourly basis. But these movements that are rising have torn the ceiling off too. So whether we fly or fall is really up to us. Society. It's very hard to describe how divided we are socially. I spend a lot of time in prisons um, where I meet geniuses, unbelievable genius creativity, <clears throat> smarts, hustle, wasted genius, mislabeled genius. I meet people who have been given 20, 30, 40 year sentences for doing the same activities that I've seen Country clubs, yacht clubs, certain campuses. I don't mean to shock anybody, but we got some 
non-violent drug offenders right here. Uh, don't raise your hand. It's being recorded. But when I was at Yale, I saw more kids doing more drugs, frankly, with more money and more variety than I ever saw kids doing drugs in housing projects. None of those kids at Yale went to prison. They never even called the cops. If a kid at Yale or Berkeley gets in trouble with drugs, they don't go to prison, they go to rehab. At worst, they have to withdraw for a semester and come back. But a few blocks from Yale and a few blocks from here, kids doing the same drugs that are being done by these students are going to prison. When they come out, they leave a physical prison and they enter a social prison where they can't vote in a lot of states, still. They can't get a student loan. They can't rent an apartment forever. It's very hard to describe and to understand how divided we are socially. Spent a lot of time in Appalachia. Uh, have a project that we're doing where I, I took five leaders from South Central Los Angeles who are frontline dealing with the addiction crisis in South Central. Uh, the crack cocaine epidemic devastated those communities, not just because of the drug use, but because the way society responded was, lock them up, build more prisons. You're on drugs, it's your moral failure. You know what's gonna make you better? 20 years in prison. Nobody says that about their own kid. Oh, my kid's on drugs. I know we'll help him. 20 years in prison. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody says this about their own kid. So when somebody comes up with a solution that draconian, you know in their mind they're thinking, this is somebody else's kid. But there's leaders on the ground in South Central who understand an addiction crisis and what to do about it and what works. And to my great heartbreak, now that West Virginia and Appalachia is being devastated by an addiction crisis there with heroin and meth and other drugs, at no point did it occur to any of those people in West Virginia to maybe call on folks in urban America who might have an idea what to do about it. And at no point did it occur to most people in urban America to call those folks going to those funerals. Now you think about that. Common pain in both communities, no common purpose. Even though in West Virginia, you have people, you have some towns that literally have to rent freezer trucks on Fridays because there's so many overdoses that by Saturday night, the morgue is full and they have to put the body someplace on Sunday. Common pain, people dying of drugs, for drugs, and from drugs, but no common purpose. So we put a bunch of leaders in an airplane at LAX and flew them to West Virginia and had them sit down and talk with some of the leaders from West Virginia about what's going on. And Trump voters, Hillary voters, black and Latino, white, rural, urban, fell in love in this. Instant. Because they're going through the same crowd. And yet there's nothing in society that's helping people find each other and find a way forward. You say, oh, this is very heartbreaking, but we're here to talk about the environment. It's the same thing. Things that are sacred are not being honored in our political system, things that women march for and African Americans and our allies march for and died for and bled for, that labor leaders laid down their lives for, that folks at Stonewall risked their lives for, things that the Jewish community stood up against on a global scale, 
are all being thrown in the garbage can because things that are sacred are not being honored. I don't believe we have any throwaway children. I don't believe we have any throwaway neighborhoods or nations, and we certainly don't have any throwaway species or resources. It's all sacred. And yet, it's not being treated that way. And so, part of why this fight to save the Earth itself and its ability to maintain life for us and for our children is so important and so challenging is because the other things that don't work. See, people are mad at Trump because, well, he's Trump. <laughs> you just double click on that icon and just make a long list. Trump's doing a bunch of bad stuff. That's not his biggest crime. Trump doing a bunch of bad stuff is not his biggest crime. He has a lot of crimes. Snatching babies from mamas at the border, that's a crime that will stain that family's name for 10 generations. And that's just one of his crimes. But doing bad stuff is not his biggest crime. His biggest crime is he's stopping us from doing good stuff. He's stopping us from doing necessary stuff. He's stopping us from doing the things that we all know need to be done to bring us together, to repower America in a clean way, in a green way, to put people who don't have jobs, who are in prison or at risk of going to prison, to work, putting up solar panels, <coughs> making organic agricultural work, becoming entrepreneurs in these new sectors. Every single thing that's good for the earth is a job. Every single thing that's good for the earth is a job, it's a contract, it's a business opportunity. Solar panels don't put themselves up. Wind turbines don't manufacture themselves. Uh, organic uh, uh, gardens don't make themselves. Every single thing that we need to make the earth whole is also work that can make our society whole. And when you have a whole society, democracy flourishes because there's enough. There's not this sense of scarcity. And so these ecological solutions are, are, are bigger than just the way that the environmentalists talk about them. Are, the ecological revolution is key to the social revolution, which is key to the democratic expansion. It's all the same. It's one process. And you can tell because it goes up together or it goes down together. 2008, you had a guy who ran for office the highest office in the land. And he said, global warming is real. He said, it's caused by humans. He said, cap and trade will fix it. And it will create millions of green jobs. I miss that guy every day. His name was John McCain. His name was John McCain. John McCain and Barack Obama were both climate champions in 2008, 10 years ago. Both parties nominated people who agree with you on climate, who agree with you on the environment. Both parties. Think about that, how far we've fallen. It all goes up together. There was an expansion of democratic hope. There was coming out of the breakdown of the financial crisis, a breakthrough in terms of public spending and stimulus and that kind of stuff, and a huge commitment on the part of President Obama to green and clean solutions. I know I was there, so were you. It all goes up together or it all comes down together. But we commit the sin, saying that's not my issue. That's not my issue. Prisons, that's somebody else's issue. I'm working on the environment or the environment, screw that. That's just a bunch of hippies, screw that. You know, I'm woke. <laughs> How woke you gonna be on a dead planet? <laughs> so, this is why I think smaller discussions like the one we can have now are important. Um, I've got a lot of solutions and positive, happy stuff. I'll, I'm not gonna leave you this down. <laughs> But I want you to know, um, 
who you are and what you believe in and what you believed in before you had a name for it. Back when you were just a kid with a sensitive, bizarre child. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's just basically we were We're weird kids. Most of us in this room, almost all of us. Care too much? Cry too easy? Hate to see anybody mistreated? Sometimes we cry more for the kid getting picked on than the kid cried for himself or herself. Hate to see somebody kick a dog, even one your dog. And you're needed now. That, that care too much quality, which has caused you so much pain these past two to three years, is the most precious thing we have in this country. I want you to resist the temptation to become what you're fighting. Resist the temptation to become what you're fighting. There's a way that we can sometimes think, well, they're mean and hateful and terrible, and so now I'm going to be mean and hateful and terrible. They won't listen to me, so I won't listen to them. And they don't care about us, I'm not going to care about them. I don't mean to offend anybody. And I hope you don't walk out of here mad at me. The KKK is very good at hating people. You suck at hating people. <laughs> I'm sorry. You suck at hating people. You're not good at it. You're trying, but you're miserable. Okay? Every day it's the same thing. You wake up, you open your eyes, you reach for your phone, and you start freaking out. <laughs> then you freak out until 10.13, when you put the phone back down, and you wake back up, and then you, I hate these people. I hate that man. And the thing is, I'm sure that you're trying your best, but you're just not good at it. You're not going to out-hate these haters. You're not going to out-divide these dividers. You are going to fail at that. But you can outwork them. And you can outlove them. And you can out-human them. And that's what you're going to do anyway. We will govern again. Last week showed you. I mean, we had, what, 110 million people coming in the midterm? It's the biggest midterm performance in like a century? There's a majority out there for you. Looks kind of like this room. Kind of like a Skittles bag, <laughs> all colors and weird people. <laughs> There's a majority out there for you. You can govern. You can win some elections. But are you going to govern for? Are you going to govern for everybody? Or are you just going to be the mirror image of this stuff? That's not obvious yet. How much hatred and vitriol are you spewing? How much contempt do you have for the people who voted against you? How many of your conversations are about how somebody else is stupid or wrong or bigoted? Because how you are when you're down might give a clue to how you're going to be when you're up. And how you use the power you have right now might give some insight into how you might use the power you're going to get later. And I'm worried about us. 
I'm worried about us. Because, look, Mike, but then you're holding us a awfully high standard for giving the president a history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. heartbreak about the people who voted for this nonsense is number one, you and I both know we left them behind a long time ago. Most of us grew up in those towns and couldn't wait to get the hell out of there. And they started closing those factories and people started dropping dead opioid overdoses. <coughs> I didn't go check on them, neither did you. That's true. They didn't come help us. We didn't go help them. You and I both know that 99 times out of 100, when we say straight white male, it ain't a compliment. At some point, people might get the message. You and I both know that it's not probably the best strategy when you're trying to get people to come around to have as your main slogan, you suck, vote for me. <laughs> you are an ignorant bigot, vote for me. Not saying we should put up with ignorance or bigotry, but I'm saying that you and I both know hurt people hurt people. And love is not a finite resource. We created a beautiful circle in 2016 that included Muslims proudly included Black Lives Matter proudly, included the Dreamers and other immigrants proudly, LGBTQ plus everything else proudly, nominated the first woman proudly, and we should never go back from that. One of the most beautiful circles I've ever seen around that 2016 moment. And anybody who says that we were wrong for including all those folks who've been left out and spit on and mistreated, no, we're gonna keep that circle. folks who were hurting, who didn't feel that they had a place in that circle. And that's okay. Now you've lost me now, Dan. <laughs> My God. Come here to hear this crap. <laughs> you want to center those white guys again, put them back in the center. They're the only ones that matter. <laughs> then threw overboard and won't pay their pensions and won't pay their health care. And I haven't seen any liberals come to fight for them because they voted for Trump and they work for fossil fuels. And say, so, man, how can you be out there helping the coal miners in their fight? They voted for Donald Trump. I said, wait, hold on a second. These are straight liberals. You guys love me when I go to San Quentin and work with people who've been convicted of murder <laughs> but 
but how can I work with a Trump voter? <laughs> this is where we are now. I mean, I love my friends in San Quentin, I love everybody. But my friends on death row in San Quentin might arguably have done more harm than a sick, retired coal miner voted for Trump. You'll govern again. You'll govern again. You'll, you'll, you'll have happy days. You'll, you'll, you'll be embarrassing your kids on YouTube. <laughs> Slinging all that snot like you were slinging on 2008. I saw y'all in Berkeley. Berkeley was embarrassing the world when Obama won. That was, but that y'all were crying and booing. But my hope and my prayer is that the next time we win, in our hearts we're going to be not winning against, not winning against, not winning against. We're winning four. Thank you very much. Talk about the environment actually. But um, 
all the social and political um, aspects of this talk resonate. And what I want to ask you is, as a scientist, is how do we do a better job of communicating with the body, body politic and society? Because right now, I've just given a talk about the IPCC, the latest IPCC report. Very depressing. We all know it's very depressing. However, right now, I feel like, can you give me something concrete? Action. Because I feel a little bit like, as a scientist, I'm doing my job. My job is to, is to know how the environment works and make predictions and all of that. I'm doing my credible deal. <laughs> However, nothing is happening when I give when I give my my part of the of the assembly line, you know, my my participation, I give it, and I give it wholeheartedly. But then nothing, the process just stops. So I would like a a bit of a, a bit of a concrete something if you can give me that I can go out of here and do. Um, so the first question, what can you do for me, and the last question, what can we do together, is the same question. So um, let me just deal with that right up front. The climate science, climate science is dope. So thank you for what you're doing. It's the brain science and the political science that we somehow don't apply to the next step. It is very, very hard for people to accept bad news, um, period. So most people refuse to see that there's a problem until they know there's a solution. And you know, the minute there's a solution, suddenly people can accept the problem. I mean, for instance, everybody in here in 100 years is going to be dead. That's a big problem but you're not worried about it, nothing you can do about it. If it turned out that there was some app you could download <laughs> and get an extra 200 years and your phone didn't work, now you've got a problem. <laughs> okay, well, there's a solution, but you've got a problem. And so what I would say is that the solution side of climate, I find more motivating. I got accused of being an environmentalist accidentally. It wasn't my ambition to be an environmentalist. I was trying to get jobs for Pookie and Snoopy, Run Run, and Shanana. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I was trying to do. I one question, can Pookie get a job? That was it. <laughs> and it was self-interested. I was tired of Pookie standing in front of my house. I would rather Pookie to be on top of my house putting up a solar panel than being in front of my house. So it was very practical. And we had just passed a bunch of bills in California to make it possible for the solar industry to take off and all this sort of stuff. And it turned out they had a labor shortage because they had all these uh, consumers and products and companies and advertisements and tax credits and no workers. So people were ordering solar panels, it'd be three to six months before they would go up because they had no workers. And I said, well, geez, you, you know, you got the most important work that needs to be done. And I got the people who most need work. So can we put these two groups together? So we created something called the Green Jobs Corps in Oakland. And we started training you know, young folks from the community to put up solar panels. And a woman named Nancy Pelosi, who had just become Speaker of the House for the first time, <laughs> heard about our program, took me to Washington, DC, had me testify in front of her committees. And we got George W. Bush to sign a bill called the Green Jobs Act 2007 to spread that little program from Oakland all across the country. In 2008, I wrote a book about it. The book became a bestseller. A guy named Barack Obama read the book. And a year later, I'm in the White House overseeing $80 billion in green and clean recovery spending. And we had a real shot. And Ted Kennedy died. And we didn't have 60 votes in the Senate anymore. And these wonderful people called the Koch brothers decloaked. 
and you're like, what the hell is that? This guy? <laughs> Back to your doom. You know? Where'd you guys come from? And it turned into a horror movie from which we haven't recovered. But I remember the moment that it turned. It took gore telling everybody that we were in trouble and then the rest of us saying, and here's how we solve it. And we had that big green moment. Then our opponents came and smacked us down. Now I'm gonna tell you something. This is why I said, the, so the political science is, lead with a solution. Every solution to climate change is gonna create jobs and that kind of stuff. But then the, the brain science comes in. If you punch, which I don't advise anybody doing, this is a hypothetical, but if you were, if someone were, unadvisedly, to punch a conservative, they would get mad. If you punch a liberal, we get sad. <laughs> okay? It's just how we are. So, when they started punching us, Got sad. We said, Jesus, this is, this, is, this is terrible. I was like, Why are they so mean? Don't they understand? We need another report. So, I think. Honestly, I mean, I, I, I saw groups, I mean, I'm not gonna you know, mention these groups names, but very large environmental groups. The minute that green job was no longer popular, dropped the whole thing. Just dropped it. Oh, well, that was, that, that was popular? Oh, now it's not popular? Forget it. And what they didn't understand is that we had gotten the entire Congressional Black Caucus, every black congressperson, except for Arthur Davis, who then became a Republican, doesn't count, but every other. <laughs> Every other black congressperson, we had gotten to vote for cap and trade under Obama, saying jobs were going to come. That you were going to be retrofitting all these buildings, cutting energy bills in your poor districts, and putting people to work to put in those new furnaces and blow in all that clean insulation. The jobs were coming. And the minute that they said, well, that's green socialism, and it's no longer popular. All our white environmental allies ran down the street and never heard from them again. That's the truth. When it was popular and polling well, they were for it. It got unpopular for three days, and they abandoned it. You can't build a green growth alliance like that. God bless my conservative friends. They have some of the worst ideas ever. <laughs> and they stick with them. <laughs> They've been fighting against the Voting Rights Act since it passed. <laughs> and, and, and now where is it? It's in, inactive. They fought against the Voting Rights Act for 50 years and won. We couldn't stick with green jobs for one year. Now we're wandering around 10 years later, how do we get people back engaged? People were engaged. But we couldn't deal with the counterfire. That's brain science and political science. You're doing your job. But the rest of us need to understand, we have to say that we got a better future for you, not a worse one. Number two, the Senate, the Electoral College, and all the things that we want to point to today, if the election had gone differently in 2016, we wouldn't be talking about it. So part of this is, it's a feature, not a bug, that these little nobody states get a say. I like little nobody folks getting a say when they're poor black people. I like little nobody folks getting a say when it's poor Latinos or Native Americans or LGBTQ. So I need to be consistent. The 
Our Constitution makes sure that poor little nobody people in Mount Montana can't just get run over. They at least get a say in the Senate. I think it's a good thing. We need to figure out how to go talk to those people in Montana and figure out where there's some common ground. And if there's common ground, we should work together. If we can't, we should beat them on the waves. But I don't like this idea that based on one election working out catastrophically, we now want to throw away protections in our constitution for minorities and small, smaller groups uh, that voted against us. I just don't like it. So I don't see it as a, as, a, as a bug, I see it as a feature. I like it. It makes us work harder. We gotta go a lot of places we wouldn't go otherwise. We can't just be on our coast with our big numbers and impose our will on the rest of the country, which would backfire in other ways. Um, I like the way that system works. We gotta work it harder. Um, with regard to climate anxiety, um, look, I don't have a happy song for these kids. I don't. And I don't think our kids in the Western democracies deserve a happy song. You got kids in Yemen and Syria, they're not going to make it from here till tonight. So if you're going to have a rank order of kids who are anxious, let's just have some perspective. Okay? And we got to talk to kids like that. You got the you got the best shot in the world at saving the world in your generation. Uh, I'm, look, man, we've we've gotten look. I love everybody. We've gotten a little soft. We've gotten a little soft. Um, I, I you know I don't have to lecture anybody here, but there was a time when you know they they put dogs on my father. They put fire hoses on my aunts and uncles. They used to lynch people. And still do. And you go to Berkeley or Brooklyn, and people are like, these tweets. Toxic 
than even the good ones. Once they get in there, you hate them too. So, so what I would say is, what do you call you enjoyed that talk just as much as I did. Um, that was probably one of my favorite lectures um, of the, I don't know, hundreds of lectures I've attended over the past two to three years. Um, I think that the timing of this message, resisting the temptation to become what you're fighting, is very important as we have an election coming up. My biggest takeaway besides what I mentioned in the intro was the question posed by one of the guests, which was, how do we scale empathy? Our country can certainly afford a lot more empathy right now, a lot more reflection. And in our defense, this microwave culture of social media has enabled us to express our unreflected thoughts within seconds. And that is not a good recipe for um, civil discussion. So try to think before you act or think before you tweet um, why that person might not or why that person might have expressed such an opinion that you view as racist or bigoted. Um, it's likely uninformed and 
it may take, I'm not saying this is always the case, it may just take them being informed on a particular point for them to remain consistent in what they are expressing as a, uh, a moral idea, right? New information can reveal the hypocrisy in such statements, and sensible people, reasonable people, will likely change their opinion as a consequence. At least that's the goal. I think we are often losing sight of the goal, which is ultimately harmony among all people of different ideologies, of different racial backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds. The goal isn't war. Well, we'll see, I guess. But anyway, till next week. See you later.